Anyhow, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We are in, well, we're now past the midway point, so we're actually nearing the end of a sermon series on this Old Testament book of Esther. Last week, we took a break because we had a guest with us, Robert Kim, uh, preached to us from the Gospel of John. So we are returning to Esther this morning, and we're going to be looking at two chapters, chapters 7 and 8. And while you're uh, opening your Bible to those chapters, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew racks. I'll give you a quick recap of our last time in Esther, which again was two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, we also covered two chapters. We covered chapters 5 and 6. And in chapter 5, Esther goes before the king of Persia. She goes before the king of Persia to make her request known. You see, she found herself, along with her people, in quite a predicament because Haman, the king's right-hand man, had devised a plan to have all of the Jews in the Persian Empire destroyed. And so an edict was written and sent out for uh, months later on one particular day for the Jews to be annihilated, essentially. And Esther finally builds up the courage to go into the king's presence, and so she goes to the king, not knowing whether she would live or die, and she finds favor with the king. But she doesn't yet in that moment share her request, which the request is for the king to undo this edict that was sent throughout the empire against her very own people. Rather, what she does is she says, I want you and Haman Uh, to come to a feast that I will prepare. And so they come, and they feast. And the king at the feast asks Esther, okay, what is your request? Esther still does not uh, share the request in that moment. She says, all right, here's the deal. I want you to come back for a second feast. And they agree to do so. Meanwhile, Haman, um, if you have been with us, you know that this guy is opposed to Mordecai, a relative of Esther's. He's opposed to Mordecai because Mordecai, throughout the story, has refused to bow in the presence of Haman. And so Haman uh, devises this plot, first of all, to have all the Jewish people destroyed because Mordecai himself is a Jew. But now he also devises a plot for uh, Mordecai himself to be hanged. And so that pretty much covers chapters 5 and 6 and leads us into where we're going to pick up in chapter 7. Now, Since we're covering two chapters again, I'm not going to read all two chapters out loud. We'll um, we'll, we'll work through it together, and I'll draw attention um, to what's going on in the storyline. But before we do that, let me pray for us, all right? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word, because you are not silent. You have spoken. And in speaking, you have made yourself known to us. You have made known to us. Uh, the good life, uh, how to live uh, under your authority and under your promises. We pray now that you would give us hearts that are willing to submit to your word. We pray that you would open our ears to hear. And we pray that you, as we have already sung about in our service, that you, in your reckless love, would come and pursue us. Come and find us through your word, through this particular portion of your word this morning. Come and find us wherever we are believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. You are able to chase us down. 
We pray that you would do that so that we might be changed in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's first look at the first six verses of chapter 7 of Esther. So this second feast begins. Remember, at the first feast, Esther failed to make known the request to the king, so she tells uh, the king and Haman to come back for a second feast. So as we begin chapter 7, this second feast begins. And as they are drinking wine after the meal, the king asks Esther for a third time in the narrative, the overall narrative, Esther, essentially, what is your request? What is it that you want from me? That happens in verse 2. And then finally, beginning in verse 3, Esther answers the question. She begins to reveal Haman's plot against herself and the Jewish people. Now, I want you to realize something. Esther most likely has to be, not most likely, Esther has to be very careful here. She has to be cautious in how she reveals Haman's plot because, remember, after all, it was the king who ultimately signed off on this edict. Now, the king was unaware of the people for whom the edict was against, the Jewish people. Uh, he did not know that. He didn't bother to ask that the level of questions. He didn't uh, bother to worry about the detail. All he knew from Haman was that there was a people in the empire who were potentially going to become trouble for the king. And you know that the king, a man of his power, he can't have trouble in his kingdom. He can't have people um, unwilling to listen to what he says. And so he signs off on it. So Esther has to be careful here because the plot that she's going to reveal is ultimately a plot that the king himself signed off on. So she tells the king about this plan to destroy her people, the Jews. And in do doing so, she identifies herself fully with her people, the Jewish people. Now, we've already seen and talked about um, multiple times how this, this is a process for Esther. This is a, a process, a journey that she has been uh, in the midst of, of being willing to commit herself more fully to her spiritual identity and less to her cultural identity as she finds herself in the Persian Empire. And so this is yet another sign. It's, it really, you could say it's the culmination of it in her identification with her people. Verse 5, I want you to look at that. We have this climactic moment. The king wants to know who did it, right? Who is the one who authored this plot? Who authorized this? And in verse 6, Esther answers by replying, a foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. Can you imagine this moment for Haman? Imagine being Haman in this moment. Haman thought, you know, if you go back to chapter, uh, chapters 5 and 6, remember after the first feast, Haman thinks he's a, a hot shot because he gets invited to feast with the queen and the king. So him at being at this feast, uh, it's, it's an honor for him. He thinks he's such a big deal and that he's uh, able to be present here, but Esther has another plan in mind. She uses the feast to reveal to the king in the presence of Haman what his plot was. And then we're told Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now let's look at verses 7 through 10. The king is angry, right? 
He's angry. He's filled with fury. So he goes out into the palace garden. Now, we, in our English translation, we miss um, some of the really depth of this anger that the king is feeling here in the text. Karen Jobes, a commenter on uh, the book of Esther, says that although lost in English translation, the king's fury is effectively communicated in the Hebrew words, which sound like machine gun fire when pronounced aloud. So he's filled with fury. He's going out of his mind, essentially. And I want you to to, uh, realize something. Is it really because he's discovered that this plot is against ultimately his wife, the queen, and her people? I mean, maybe somewhere in there, sure. But probably he is most angry because Haman has dishonored him. Haman has deceived him. In other words, this is about the king's pride. So before you kind of get on board with the king and say, finally, he has righteous anger towards something, eh, not so sure. That's really what's happening here. So Haman stays. The king, uh, he, he leaves the room. He goes out into the palace of the garden. Haman stays, and he begs for his life before Queen Esther. Now, I've said numerous times throughout this book that this book is filled with incredible irony. And uh, I I mean, I would go as far as to say that uh, Esther contains more irony than the whole of the the, the Bible put together. And uh, when we uh, wrap up toward the end of this sermon, I'm going to kind of just walk you through some of the various ironies that we see going on here. But I want you to think about this particular irony here. You have Haman, the king's right-hand man, this guy with all kinds of power and authority uh, in the Persian Empire, a guy who was uh, wielding his power against Mordecai, ultimately against the Jewish people, he thought. And now he finds himself falling on his knees before Queen Esther, a Jew, to beg for his life. Now, the king actually finds himself in a little bit of a predicament. Can he punish Haman? The, The reason I ask that question is because, again, He's the one who ultimately signed off on the edict. So can he punish Haman for a plot he himself actually approved? If so, if he was willing to punish Haman for this, he would basically be admitting his role in the plot. So he's in a little bit of a predicament. So the king finally returns, and what does he find? What does he walk, on, walk in on? He, he walks in on Haman falling on the couch next to Esther. The end of verse 8. The, the king's response to this is, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Now, one commentator points out something that I think is really significant for us understanding what's going on here. And that is that... Um, the harem protocol, so the harem, this group of women, and there were actually various groups um, that were basically property of the king, uh, protocol was that only the king could be left alone with a woman from his harem. uh, Haman was required to leave. Haman would have known this. He would have known this protocol, how things worked. Um, So if he was in his right mind, under normal circumstances, when the king retreated, Haman too would have retreated. But Haman does not, because Haman realizes he's trapped. 
What's he going to do? Follow the king out the door, this guy who might end up, who's going to kill him? Is he going to just go back um, somewhere by himself, basically admitting guilt, and he's eventually going to be pursued? No, what he does is he remains to beg for his life. Now, this same commentator points out that a man was not to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. All right, so this gives you a little bit of idea of what exactly is happening in this moment. Haman falling onto the couch next to Esther would have been unthinkable. Now, he's not most likely trying to assault her in any way. He's simply begging for his life. He is desperate. The king walks in right at this moment, and guess what? The king's predicament is now resolved. Because the king doesn't have to worry about now punishing Haman for the plot that he devised. He can now punish Haman for his act against the king's harem, his own wife, Esther. Haman has violated harem protocol. And so the king, in a sense, is kind of off the hook now. One of the eunuchs, we we learn, makes the king aware of the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. And guess what happens in yet another moment of irony in this story? Haman is hanged on the gallows that he himself had built for Mordecai to be hanged. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. The king gives Esther Haman's possessions. See, Haman was executed in the end, ultimately, for being a traitor to the throne. Not for the plot that he devised, as we just talked about, but ultimately for being a traitor. And so his property was taken. And since Esther was the one that Haman ultimately violated or wronged, the king gives Haman's possessions over to Esther. The king gives Mordecai Haman's or, or gives Mordecai Haman's position. I want you to see the irony in that. I mean, th- th- this chapter in particular is just dripping with irony. Here you have the guy, you know, he's just hanged, and Mordecai was the one who was supposed to be hanged. Not only is the reversal there, but now Mordecai gets Haman's position. He now becomes the king's right-hand man. But we still have an issue, don't we? We still have this issue that, yes, the issue of Haman is taken care of. He's gone. He's out of the story now. But what about this edict? What about this edict that is out there, that in months to come, the Jews would be annihilated? They would be destroyed. What about that edict? So Esther pleads with the king. She pleads with him to revoke this edict. But we learned something that we've actually already learned um, earlier in the story, that that cannot be done in the Persian Empire. The king cannot revoke one of his own edicts. So he has to figure out a possible possible plan around this. So he tells Esther, I I can't do that. I don't even have the power to revoke my own edict. It's against the law. But here's what I empower you to do. Here's what I give you permission to do. You and Mordecai can write a new edict. And you can find a way to counteract the edict that has already been established. So Mordecai and Esther find themselves in the position of having to write an edict that somehow counteracts the first one. That brings us uh, to verse 9. 
So Mordecai in particular writes an edict with the help of the king's scribes. And the, the edict essentially allows the Jews to defend themselves, verses 11 through 12. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on the day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, by the way, next Sunday, we, um, as we look at uh, the beginning of chapter 9, we're also going to pick up on some content from chapter 8, and we're going to talk about this idea of, of killing. And what does God think about Esther and Mordecai's plot or their uh, edict to counteract um, what, the edict had, what the king had put into place? How are we to think about that? What's going on here? That's next week's sermon. But a copy of this uh, decree was issued in every province. And so we now have the counteraction in place. Mordecai, we learn, goes out from the king's presence in royal robes and a crown. Verse 15, we're told, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And then finally in verse 17, and in every province in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Quite a reversal that takes place here, huh? Let's talk about this reversal because ultimately there's a grand reversal, you know, the overall storyline and what happens within it. But within that grand reversal, there are multiple mini reversals that take place. And I want to draw your attention to some of those. Probably would would have been most helpful to have a diagram of some kind, um, a slide for it, but we'll do this the best that we can. Um, verse, or chapter 3, verse 10, the king gives Haman his ring. Chapter 8, verse 2, the king gives Mordecai the same ring. Chapter 3, verse 12, Haman summons the king's scribes. Chapter 8, verse 9, Mordecai summons the king's scribes. Chapter 3, verse 12, letters are written and sealed with a ring. Chapter 8, verse 10, letters are written and sealed with the same ring. Chapter 3, verse 13, the Jews, even women and children, are to be killed on one day. Chapter 8, verse 11, the enemies, even women and children, are to be killed on one day. We're almost nearing the end, so just stick with me. And even if you don't keep track of all of this, that's okay. It's not the point. I just want you to know that there are multiple reversals going on here. Chapter 3, verse 14, Haman's decree is publicly displayed as law. Chapter 8, verse 13, Mordecai's decree is publicly displayed as law. And finally, chapter 3, verse 15, the couriers go out in haste. Chapter 8, verse 14, the couriers go out in haste. Now what I want to do is I want to contrast the impact of these two edicts. The edict authored by Haman and the edict authored by Mordecai. Let's first consider these two edicts and the impact that they had on the Jewish people. Chapter 4, verse 3. Here's the detail that we learn after Haman's edict. There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
After Mordecai's edict, chapter 8, verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. So for the Jewish people, they go from mourning, from weeping and wailing to light and gladness, joy and honor. How about the impact on uh, Mordecai himself? Well, after Haman's edict, first verse of chapter 4, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes. Remember that? He goes out into the midst of the city and he cries with a loud and bitter cry. And we're also, we also get the detail back in chapter 4, four that he wasn't allowed uh, past the king's gate, much less into the king's present wearing sackcloth and ashes. Well, after Mordecai's edict, chapter 8, verse 15, here's what Mordecai does in response. He goes out from the king's presence in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Finally, what about the impact on the city of Susa as a whole? Well, after Haman's edict, chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. After Mordecai's edict, eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 15, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Multiple mini-reversals within this grand story of reversal. I want to stop here, and I want to ask you, does this resonate with you? This theme of reversal, does it raise within you thoughts, feelings about reversal for your own life, for reversal in the world in which we live? I mean, each and every one of us, our stories are filled with sin, with sorrow, with suffering. And there's not a day that goes by in which we don't long for reversal of some kind to take place in our sin, in our suffering, and in our sorrows. So the book of Esther, with this theme of reversal, it, it's talking to us. It's speaking to us. It's relating to us on a very personal level. Well, thankfully, reversal is the theme of the biblical story as a whole. Throughout the biblical story, we, have this, we see this theme from death to life, from death to life, from death to life. I want to point out just a few scriptures that kind of highlight this theme of reversal that I'm talking about. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. The call to worship actually came from these verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Luke chapter 1, verses 49 and 50. This is Mary mother of Jesus, in basically in song. It's known as the Magnificat. He who is mighty has done great things for us, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Throughout the biblical story, God's people long for reversal. Throughout human history, people long for reversal. Why is that? It's because we know deep down inside that there's something wrong right? We talk about this all the time. We know deep down inside that there's something wrong within us 
and that there is something wrong outside of us. And so we long for reversal within us in terms of all of the sins that we've committed, the sins committed against us, our sorrows, our suffering. But then we look out at the world around us and we are overwhelmed by injustice. And so we long for reversal out there as well. Again, this theme is a personal theme. It's a theme that is common to all of humanity. I want to highlight just two more passages of Scripture. Actually, there will be a third. So I'm going to highlight three. And what I want you to begin to see here is that this longing for reversal shows up, so shows up in both a personal longing and we could say a, a social longing. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. Zechariah is probably not a book of the Bible that you open up to or read from all that often, but this is actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, I was actually introduced to this passage of Scripture in taking a class on urban ministry when I was in college at the Pittsburgh Project in Pittsburgh. Salim Gabriel, the director at the time, um, this was actually uh, part of their mission statement, and you'll see why. But for me, in planning a church in an urban context, this is a passage that I come back to from time to time for encouragement and also to kind of feed and fill this longing for reversal. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Reversal. We encounter it again, this theme of reversal that brings out the longing inside of us for all of the wrongs against us and all of the wrongs out there in the world to be reversed. The biblical story actually concludes um, with the grandest of all reversals. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a, a, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, from this Zechariah passage, as well as the Revelation passage, I want to highlight um, first this social dimension or aspect. Did you pick up on it? Did you see it? This longing for uh, a reversal in society. Again, this speaks to the fact that as we look out at our world, we can often be overwhelmed by injustice. We can feel helpless. And much of the biblical story actually speaks to this, and it provides us with the ability, the capacity, the faith to dream of redemption, to dream of something different, to, to dream of something 
more. Now, our struggle living in this life is that we only get tastes. We only experience it partially. And this, I think, becomes maybe a rub for us in the book of Esther, because on the one hand, we see how the storyline unfolds. We see the reversal that happens, and we might be tempted to think that this was a complete reversal that took place. God's people are now safe forever and always, but that's actually not the case. Now, I admit that many of us uh, in our life, we will not necessarily get to experience or encounter the level of reversal that we see unfold in the book of Esther. And that's where faith gets really hard, doesn't it? How do we walk day after day in light of our own star stories filled with sorrow, sin, and suffering? How do we walk day after day faced with the injustices of the world around us and all of the sorrows and sufferings and sin out there? How do we walk day by day uh, with knowledge of those realities, and not only knowledge of realities of those realities, but as God's people called to actually enter into it, lean into it, how do we do that and maintain faith when sometimes it seems like there is no reversal happening at all? This is why we need the book of Esther. This is why we need the biblical story, because the biblical story enables us to dream. It enables us to imagine that things actually could be different, that things are not always what they seem, that there is a bigger picture unfolding and God is at work. And yes, in this life, we will only see partial healing. We will only see partial recovery. We will only see partial redemption. We will only see partial reversal. But God in his word promises that one day, right? One day, full reversal will come. Full reversal will take place. And so this longing for reversal, it has both social dimensions as well as personal dimensions. And I want to point this out because sometimes we kind of get caught up in this argument of, well, are the implications of the gospel are they predominantly for the individual or are they predominantly for society at, at large? Well, when we look at the biblical story, there is no competition. There is no competition between the two. The gospel speaks to the whole of life. It speaks to both uh, people as individuals and it speaks to societies as a whole. All right? And so our longing for reversal manifests itself in that way as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think this is a passage of Scripture about individual or personal reversal now. And then we're going to tie, tie it all together as we wrap up. The Apostle Paul writes this, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin, whom he... Um, for our sake he made him to be sin, who no, knew no sin, talking about Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Talk about irony right? Talk about reversal. Jesus, the sinless one, the perfect one, on the cross absorbs our sin, absorbs our wrongdoing. What a reversal. And by faith, what Paul is saying, and he unpacks this throughout his letters, is that by faith, connecting ourselves to Jesus, we then can walk out of God's presence, not under judgment or wrath, but clothed 
in royal robes wearing a crown. And I love this reversal that takes place in Mordecai's life, right? This reversal of how he, after the first edict, mourns and grieves and is wailing aloud in the city streets. He's in sackcloth and ashes. But then by the end in chapter 8, he goes, and he can't even get into the king's presence like that. But in chapter 8, he comes from the king's presence in royal robes and a crown of glory, This is actually a picture for us of the gospel. It's a picture for us of justification. This is a word that I forget which chapter of Esther um, we referred to, we talked about it, but justification is this act of being declared righteous by God. This act of being told that we're good, that we're okay, not because of who we are or anything that we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This is the glory, the hope, and the beauty of the gospel, that despite our stories filled with sin, both our wrongdoing and what has been done against us, our sorrows, our sufferings, that in God's eyes, through our faith in Jesus, we are beautiful. We actually are whole in God's eyes, and we long for the day in which we actually become whole experientially. Now, let's tie this all together, this personal and social dimension of the reversal, because they're actually intimately connected. If we go back to the beginning of the biblical story, God gives the first human beings a command. He gives them a commission. He gives them a mission. He says to them, all right, I've made this world, this beautiful world. Now, I want you to rule over it on my behalf. I want you to cultivate it for my glory. And as you do so, you will flourish. The people around you will flourish, and the world itself will flourish. What happens? Well, we know that the first humans rebel against this mission that God gave them. And rather, what they do is they try to assert themselves as God, right? And everything falls apart. They fail in their mission. Now, tainted by sin and rebellion against God, Rather than trying to care for people, places, and things for God's glory, they use people, places, and things for their own glory. What are they trying to do? What are we trying to do as we misuse people, places, and things? We're trying to justify ourselves. Something has gone wrong internally. We're out of whack. Where do we find our our identity? Where do we find our validation and our worth? Well, what we do outside of God's presence and outside of him naming us, is that we use the people, places, and things around us in order to attempt to make a name for ourselves. We corrupt and we misuse God's good creation. Do you see how the personal and social are intimately connected? As human beings who derive our identity from God and who he tells us we are, we were meant to rule over his creation on our behalf. And when that is taken out of the equation, we ruin his good creation. And that's why one of the things that happens in redemption, as we experience reversal in our own lives, again, partial reversal, not full reversal in this lifetime, is that we are made friends with God again. We can, like Mordecai, enter into the presence of God now. And despite the reality of our sin that remains, we actually are clothed with beautiful robes, We are given a crown of glory because we are in Jesus. 
And from that identity, we then are empowered to go out into the world and to care for people, places, and things. And guess what? Now, less and less do we have to use the people, places, and things for our identity because we're becoming more secure in our identity in Christ. This, these are actually the themes all throughout the book of Esther. Why is it that Haman does such a crappy job of caring for people, places, and things? Because he's insecure in himself. He's not getting his validation and worth from his creator and redeemer. He's getting it through misusing people, places, and things. This is how these are interconnected. It's why it's actually not logical within the biblical rationale and story to decide, all right, well, the gospel is only for the person. It's not, it doesn't have any social, social ramifications. It does. It's both end. It's always both end. God made them to go together. And so we close with this. As those who are attached to Jesus, as those who have faith in Jesus, we get to go out into our city rejoicing. Even in the face of real sorrow and sin and suffering that remains, we can go out into our city rejoicing. Why? Because in Jesus, we are whole. In Jesus, we are righteous. In Jesus, we are beautiful. And we can go out into our city and even not just kind of accept the injustices around us, but lean into them and be God's participants in his mission because we're confident that a day is coming when full reversal will take place. And we're able to dream. We're able to imagine individually and and together what God might do in our city, among our neighbors, as he uses people like us who are becoming more secure in Christ. Now, what if you are with us this morning and you're not sure about the Christian faith? You're not sure about Jesus? Well, I want to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. I want to invite you to come to him, to place your, your faith in him. I want you to, and even if you don't do that in this moment, at the very least in this moment, what I want you to do is I want you to honestly consider both the longing for a reversal that you have for your own life and in the world around you, and I want you to think about this. Are you able to bring about that reversal yourself? And then moving out from yourself, the things that you place your trust in, the things that you look to, are they really able to bring about the reversal that you long for? And could it be that that alone and your dissatisfaction is pointing you to something else, to someone else? I invite you to consider Jesus, to find your identity in him, the one who gave his life for you so that you might be covered in his righteousness, covered in his beauty, covered in his glory, and to be sent out into the world as his representative, to live on behalf of others, to not have to misuse people, places, and things, but to actually love them and be a part of God's mission in bringing reversal to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, again, we rejoice in your word because without your word, we would not have the capacity to dream or imagine that things could be different. 
We pray that you would strengthen our faith. It can be so hard as we look at our own stories and as we look at the story of the world around us to maintain faith, to believe that you are in the process of making all things new, that one day you will bring about a grand reversal. So this morning, we thank you for the book of Esther, for how it speaks to this, for how it encourages us, for how it inspires us, for how it points to you as the hero of the story. Renew our faith, we pray. And most of all, I pray that you would grant us the faith to fall at the feet of Jesus, to be covered by his glory, by his beauty, by his righteousness, to find our identity in that, to be made whole in that, and to love the people and places and things of your world for your glory, not our own. Help us as a church to be this kind of people, your people, we pray, on behalf of the world that you've created. In Christ's name, amen.